We are now recording. Good evening, everyone. Um, so we'll call the meeting to order at 5.32. Would you roll call, please? Yes. Lucy Angel. Here. Nike Banger. B. Frank Here. Walker. Here. Richard Harvey. Lorita Madeline. Here. Eric Murphy. Here. Dom Harris. Here. Mark Smith. Derek So. Here. Ali Yesin. Here. Thank you. So we have quorum. Um, so first on the agenda. Actually, yeah, so we're going to change the, the agenda slightly. Uh, so our Bibles require that the first item on the agenda during the month of December is the, the election of mm -hmm. the officers. Uh, so, you know, for the purposes of this meeting, and as we previously discussed in the member meeting, we will be electing the vice chair. Uh, and then thereafter, we will be nominating and electing the president. And then just as a reminder, during our first official meeting, which was back in June, uh, what we did is that what the board recommended was to appoint a chair as an interim chair for approximately six months. And then with the understanding that upon December, they were going to elect and nominate, or nominate and then elect a new board chair. So uh, the first item that we'll cover today, and this is an action item, is for the uh, majority of the board members who are here will need to vote to elect a VP. The candidates that we have, uh, I believe, is um, board member Niha Bangar, uh, Eric Murphy, and uh, Derek So. Yes. So why don't we go ahead and do this These are the three candidates that were nominated or self-nominated for the position. So uh, why don't we do, we'll go through everyone. So let's get a head count for those who endorsed uh, the nomination and election of uh, board member Bangar as the vice chair of the uh, Pro-African Board. Go ahead and raise your hand. And you can vote more than one. Uh, Niha Bangar. Uh, Bang we have one, two, three. Okay, what about Eric Murphy? Yeah, you, you guys can vote more than once. <laughs> okay. okay, wait, so should wait. we start the first one then? Okay, so remember, you can vote more than once. And then at the end, we'll find out who has more, you know, the, uh, the most number of uh, votes in their favor. So starting off again, Niha Bangar. So we got one, Two, three, four. Okay. Uh, Eric Murphy. One, two, three, four, five. Okay. Derek So. We got one, two, three, four, five. Uh, so we have a little bit of a tie, and given that uh, four member Vanguard is here, so we're actually going through the. Uh, uh, the election of the board uh, vice chair for the Republican board, and uh, you know, we have who were those individuals in favor of forming board member Vanger as being appointed. Uh, so now you get to vote. You can vote for yourself now that you're here. So that brings a tally. And now we also have, uh, you know, those who are in favor of uh, Eric Murphy. We have five votes. Anyone else in favor? Okay. Uh, we also have um, 
those individuals are in favor of four member juries. Uh, so we have five votes. So you guys are making my job very, very, very good <laughs> because we have a tie. So there's five votes uh, for each candidate here. So we'll need to do a and here's where it gets a bit complex. It's, we need at least majority, and in this case, because now we have eight members here, the majority will be five. So we have majority for everyone, but unfortunately we can't elect all five. So what I'll say is that uh, after we elect the vice chair, we will also elect a chair. Uh, you know, there will, there will be nomination of the chair, and there will also be an election of the chair. We can do the same type of nomination where people can self-nominate or someone else can nominate. The reason why I'm explaining that is in the event that someone wants to withdraw from the vice chair position, uh, you know, run, running for the vice chair and run for the chair position, then go ahead and let me know and then now we'll figure it out mm -hmm. how we, anyone interested on in dropping out of the race? No, at the moment, okay. <laughs> Get to that. So now, why don't we go ahead and do this with the understanding that. You know, uh, I actually, um, was going to, because um, uh, I'm familiar with the process of doing it, I yeah. was mainly throwing my hat in the ring to make sure you guys were covered. Okay, yeah. so do you so, want to withdraw from? Yeah, uh, I think these two are better candidates, but I, uh, I just want to step in because I'm familiar with the process. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, thanks. So uh, board member Murphy has withdrawn from the race, so now we have, we're gonna have to do another one. With the understanding that we need at least five members to vote in favor of either board member Banger or board member Teresa. Actually, I'll uh, withdraw my name and add my name to president. Okay. So, uh, in light of the recent change, now we <laughs> officially have elected uh, board member Banger as the vice chair of the board. Mm -hmm. So now what I'll need for the, from the board is to make a motion to elect and appoint uh, board member Banger as the vice chair of the Republican board. Someone make chair, would you like to make a motion? Sure. Uh, I motion to make uh, member Neha Bangar as our vice chair. I second. Favor. I second. I second. Great. So the motion carries. All right. All right. So the next item will be agenda. And then just as a reminder, you know, our bylaws required that the officers be uh, nominated in November and elected in December. The reason why we couldn't nominate anyone in November was the board actually adopted a resolution was to revisit uh, the board chair position uh, in December. So, you know, that being said, so now what we'll do is, you know, we'll spend a few minutes just to see if there's anyone that's interested in nominating themselves for the uh, chair position. Or someone else. Or, or if you'd like to nominate someone else for that position. Uh, so please go ahead and do that. And then once we take care of that in the next piece, if anyone wants to speak as to the reason why they would like to serve on the role chair it, you know, the more than welcome to, they don't have to, and then once that concludes, then we can elect the, uh, the chair of the Co-African Board. So, yes. Um, so is this a nominating for chair for a year, or is it completing the next six months? Yes, so it will be one year. So with the term, great question by the way, because the terms of officers officially start January 1st of the calendar year, so that will be 2020, mm -hmm. and officially end December 31st of the mm -hmm. same year. So, you know, with the understanding again that both officers, VP and chair, 
uh, they won't officially assume the role until January 1st, 2020. So that being said, do we have, yeah, in addition to board members, Eric, so anyone else that's interested in the chair position? I have a question, Kay. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to reiterate the difference between the co-chair and the chair. Yeah. So, so technically the chair is expected to work with the staff mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, in preparing agenda items. Uh, you know, at times there will be meeting with the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees. So you're the spokesperson of, mm -hmm. you know, of the co-applicant board. Although you, know, you speak as a group rather than as an individual, uh, the vice chair will be there to provide assistance as needed. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, example will be when the chair it's, it's not available for personal reasons or any other reasons. So you know the vice chair will serve that role. Uh, and you know I mean the other thing from what I've seen from my experience is also chairs and VPs they work very closely. Uh, the vice chair can also bring items to the you know either directly to us or to the chair of the co-applicant board. So similar roles it's just you know one steps in when the other one is not available. So Anyone else that's interested? Can we nominate? Of course, folks? yeah, you guys can nominate. Um, I'd like to nominate Lucia. She's done a great job. Okay. Lucia and Angel for the position. Okay, do we have any more nominations, self-nominations, or nominations of any other candidate? All right, going once, going twice. All right, so we have two candidates are interested in the uh, board chair position. So what we can do, you are welcome to give speech, uh, you know, against Lauren as the reason why you want to serve on that role. You don't have to, but the form is open for you. So if you guys are interested, I'll first in. Okay, uh, my interest uh, in becoming the uh, chair for the next year is uh, my relationship with the board of trustee president. Uh, Joe DeBreeze, as we work uh, closely together with the city of Oakland, uh, him for the city, and then myself for the unhoused community. Uh, so I have a great respect for Joe as he does for myself. Now, let's see, so we have two, four, six, eight. So uh, majority will be five. So we need five votes to elect uh, you know, the chair. So why don't we start with uh, uh, board member Lucia Angel. Uh, how many votes do we have in favor? Okay. Yeah, you can vote for yourself. All right, what about for a uh, board member Derek So? Can you vote twice? Yeah, of course. Okay, so uh, majority of the board has selected uh, board member Lucia Angel as the vice chair, and again with the term, as a chair, actually, sorry. Let the record reflect, it's the chair. Uh, with the, uh, well, I guess you're continuing your 
go on past the interim, but now you will be an officer for a full year, so the chair, uh, beginning January 1st, 2020. So now what I will need is a motion to uh, elect Lucia Angel as the chair of the Republican board. I make a motion that we elect Lucia Angel as our chairperson. Second. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, motion carries. Congrats. Now we can go back to the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks everyone. Um, so first on or second in our agenda, uh, we um, can I unless there's any uh, objections, uh, can we get a motion to approve last month's uh, agenda? That'd be for November twelfth. Oh, minutes. 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 minutes sorry, minutes. minutes for November twelfth. month we did the approval of hours of operations uh, for clinical sites. Uh, there was one addition uh, to that um, for the dental clinic. Is there, do we have the hours of operations and site location? Okay, so the addition to the health center sites we can get this action, this action first, and yeah, that's something new going forward too that I've talked to our leadership about that for the, if there are changes in hours that it would be approved here. Mm -hmm. I think at this point also we're kind of starting with where we're at and then future will be where you want it to go.
says all in favor. So all in favor? Aye. 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 recommend both the physicians for the position and it would be up to the, the staff to determine who they would like to work with. Does anybody have any questions more specifically? So, uh, you know, another thing, so the as you may recall, the ad hoc committee, you know, was to meet these individuals and make a recommendation to the full board. Uh, in this case, the recommendation will be to uh, yeah, to an extend an offer to either candidate. Okay, so the recommendation to the, to the board will be to extend an offer to either of these candidates. So then what we'll need here, in light of that recommendation, will be a motion from the board where you are uh, in, uh, ratifying or accepting the recommendation from the ad hoc committee to make, you know, for our meeting system to make an offer to either of these individuals. So if one of you guys wants to make that motion, uh, or you can say approve, the ad hoc committee's recommendation, you know, for the media house system to extend an offer. So can I ask for a motion to approve the committee's recommendation to um, for Alameda Health System? Yeah, for Alameda Health System to extend an offer to either candidate for the medical director position. Mm -hmm. I Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is new for us as well, and even in talking to the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless program about how, how would we do this? And we haven't done that yet. <laughs> so well done. You are setting the yeah. stage and showing us the way forward. Um, so this is our project director report, um, briefly, that I will share with you. Uh, I like to focus on compliance. We don't have any compliance issues that I know of at this point. We are still waiting for our final um, visit report. They, like I said, we do four per year. And um, so we've completed all four this year, and we're still waiting for the final report that would indicate whether or not we have any findings. They haven't indicated, often there's some discussion or some understanding that, oh, there's this problem we want you to work with. We don't have any indication of that at this point. So, um, Also, the you know I talked about the, the SAC, the Service Area Competition. So we're coming up upon the end of uh, service area period, which ends at the it ends at the end of this month, <laughs> and the new period begins. And so, in order to be a part of that new period, we had to submit the service area competition, which is basically submit the grants or her such a request to fund again this year. We don't do that directly. Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program submits that application with us listed as a subrecipient, and that application was approved. Um, and some of the language in the budget narrative included funding for Alameda Health System 
as a subrecipient for the amount of $621,788. The total award that goes to the Healthcare for the Homeless Center is roughly $4 million. Um, the reason I'm saying roughly is because on the, on the document, actually, they have two different amounts because they're projecting sometimes small increases. It's what it was versus what it will be, and then over the different years, but know that it is roughly $4 million that the Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program gets. They divide that up partially for their own staffing and then also subrecipient to us and uh, to other contracts. We've been talking a lot about the subrecipient agreement, um, doing orientation. We're going to finalize that orientation today, and we um, have received some drafts from Alameda County as well for the new language, which we're hoping and is representative of being very much a partnership agreement, which is what we're looking for from them. Is blueprint document that kind of sets the relationship and tone for a partnership with them. We're in our clinical care department. You know, uh, just a reminder, we have two major buckets of clinical care. The mobile we focus a lot on because a lot of the funding related to this grant goes specifically for our mobile clinic and there's a lot of, um, therefore a lot of uh, interest and reporting requirements that go specifically along with mobile and a lot of pro uh, performance improvement that's driven through the subrecipient agreement for performance improvement for mobile clinic because it is um, the primary funding source is the person grant dollars that go towards mobile. So we saw 81 patients. Um, we had 81 patient encounters for November. When we're counting encounters, encounter in each visit that we have, and when we're counting them here, we're talking specifically about medical encounters. Um, likely in the future, you're going to see a combination of both medical encounters and then enabling services. The county is very interested in hearing more about how many people our mobile health specialists are meeting with during our mobile health uh, service. And what I will tell you is that it is their standard work to meet with every patient that is also a medical encounter. So what you'll see is probably soon a duplication which says we've had 81 medical visits and then 81 plus um, enabling services. The mobile health specialists typically are seeing every patient plus because they'll see every patient that comes in, but they're also doing a lot of outreach to patients who might not be coming in for a visit that day, so aren't necessarily registered for a visit that day, but doing follow-up with other patients um, that, that wouldn't necessarily be registered as a medical encounter for that day. So you'll see their numbers are probably going to be higher. Um, so as part of that, we have to make these, which they're called results-based accountability uh, metrics are the, are the quality metrics that we have to develop, both in the sub-recipient agreement and um, often specifically concerning to mobile. So we're working on developing those now to include them in the sub-recipient agreement. I think I talked a little bit last time about this problem that we're having with data um, in our new system, uh, specifically um, some of our mapping is incomplete in our new system, and so we're just tidying that up by looking at the report and finding our missing spots. And so we do have some improvement already. So for example, our report says, tell us about dental visits. Now in the past, dental was completely on paper. And every time we had to do a dental report for our annual UDS report, it included going to the pediatric dental clinic, asking for a stack of files, and then me looking through the files, trying to figure out what they say, to find out whether or not that particular young person of the right age, with or without molars, all these exceptions, and then had their dental sealants, and 
it was a lot of learning for me, but very tedious and time consuming. So I'm really excited that our UDS report electronically, Dental is now on Epic, and some dental data has shown up on my UDS report. Very little, but you know, we're only a few months in and just started and only just mapped it, so it's pretty exciting to just even see that there's a number there representing patients um, having received their dental exams, etc. So we're cleaning it up. Um, the other primary challenge is the identification of people experiencing homelessness in our system. It's a challenge for us. And I may have described last time about um, different parts of our system are counting them differently in different places. And we want uh, a source of truth. And we want all providers to be able to see the information. Um, the primary place that the UDS report is fed from is the registration patient comes in and with every registration they're asked the question identified as homeless or not homeless. That is happening. They can't move forward in our system without that identification. So the identification happens. It's the accuracy of the identification at that point that we are somewhat worried about. But not only the accuracy, the fact that the providers, once the patient has gone in for clinical care, can't see that that identification has been made. It doesn't show up anywhere for them on their side. And um, they have not been able to fix that for us. And so we now have a data governance committee um, that is specifically looking at the ex uh, identification of people experiencing homelessness, how to do it so that it is consistent across the system and reflective of the most accurate answer possible. What, when you say accurate, is it a yes or no answer? Or what are you guys <clears throat> there is the whether or not the patient's experiencing homelessness is a yes or no answer. Homeless, not homeless. And then uh, for each person experiencing homelessness, there's additional required information, including that uh, what their living situation is, whether it's street, shelter, um, doubled up, transitional. And they added a new one, actually, permanent supportive housing is also counted. So they're supposed to identify more details about what is your homeless situation that you're experiencing. That's required for our reporting. Um, for any patient identified as homeless, they're also um, intended to have their federal poverty level item complete. And right now that's not speaking in the right places. It's not, there are ways we can make it easier and not slow down the registration process as part of the issue. When a patient has Medi-Cal, we know that they're qualified at X, we want that to autofill. So there's some things that we're looking at that is to help the process. Um, family size is another thing that's required to determine whether they're, what their income level is. And so there's just a couple data points that are incomplete, typically. Um, and it's objective at the point of registration. Patients are identified or not identified based on whether the registration, people of registration feel like they have enough time to do it um, and whether they feel comfortable even asking the question. So people won't necessarily be properly screened at that point. We also think that patients might not feel comfortable sharing it at that point in the process and we would want the ability for the clinical staff to have that conversation and identify it so that it's there. Um, in a place that's more private and more comfortable. It's a 
reject it. The, the person can just make a decision whether or not they ask a question to identify the person. Yeah. So we have that issue in service by the Department of Public Health in San Francisco, and we were trying to identify better ways to kind of answer this question more um, uh, uh, correctly, basically. Um, and so we actually ended up talking to a lot of our patients and we came up with like a visual tool. Uh, so instead of asking them if you're homeless, we asked them what's your living situation? Mm -hmm. And we had the yeah. different options, right? So rent or own, uh, living with a friend, mm -hmm. or, you know, what are all the options? And like one of them was, you know, outside, outdoors, in the street, or in the tent or something. I forget what exactly it is, but that way they didn't have to like say it out loud. I just have to say I'm homeless or sometimes they didn't necessarily consider themselves homeless if they were like living at friends or like, staying in their car or you know um, so kind of having them just say can you identify your living situation they can just point to one um, first pictures it's pictures really do good. ask I mean the question yeah. we don't say are you homeless or are you not homeless we do say what is your living situation yeah. and that's exactly what we ask them but ours is a list of words I, I think it would be it could be really helpful yeah, those with pictures with the words yeah. graphics that would help with the by the with multilingual Populations. Mm -hmm. It's excellent. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, Alright, so we're working on that. And then, uh, as you just heard, our initial interviews <coughs> completed. We're very excited about our fabulous candidates and the um, action items that you guys completed today so that we can move forward to the administrative part. Any other questions, concerns? No. Alright, well, let's get into part three, the final. The final subrecipient agreement orientation, which will be followed shortly by the actual subrecipient agreement approval, hopefully uh, next month or the, or the following, assuming all goes well. So, so it's coming quickly to you. So let's just quick review what we've already kind of covered. What's in the subrecipient agreement? There's required contract language. We covered that in October. We talked about the HRSA program requirements and their description. We covered that in November. And today we're going to do a very quick and easy overview of our pass-through funds and then these other additional documents. I'm, I'm not going to actually say a lot about the other additional documents except to say that they exist in the contract in the subrecipient agreement. They're not very complicated. They're kind of like more legal things that we have to attach. Definitions, who's doing what parts, picks of doing for us. There's uh, some disclosures. Um, business forms, they're all pretty standard documents and we're not gonna review them one by one today because it's, I don't think it's necessarily very valuable. This is where you, I ask for a lot of trust that those parts are generally not very um, controversial. They're pretty standard documents. Okay, so um, what I've included for our, our use of pass-through funds today is some of the draft language for 2020 because there's some significant changes. <coughs> I'm not gonna say that this is this is the approved language, but this was some proposed language changes that we did and how we're breaking up and looking at the subrecipient agreement this year as compared to other years. I didn't put last year's subrecipient agreement in here because it's so divergent at this point from what, where we're going forward in 2020. So I didn't think that last year's document would be super helpful because we've made a significant departure from it in an effort to simplify what it is we're saying in the agreement and to kind of get, mostly to simplify, I'll say it that way. So there are some help, 
set our performance goals that are going to be required for us in this contract because of the performance or because of the pass-through dollars associated with it. And so what they're going to do is talk about two major areas of our performance goals. Those things that are happening in our clinics and our primary care, specialty care, health care services centers, and then those things associated with mobile health. And I talked about that a little bit in our project director report, that like for mobile health, we're trying to get these results-based accountability metrics. They're very specific, and there's a lot of interest there by the county to make those pretty detail-oriented and to drive improvement in our mobile health con uh, our mobile health clinics because the dollars are so associated with them. So they think of it as, we're giving you this money for this specific product, so we want to see you doing specific things with this. Versus some of the clinic-based primary care are where we're seeing most of our patients, which is really the volume that we leverage with our HRSA. There may be fewer performance metrics associated with that because the money that is the grant dollars is really indirect at that point. What we're leveraging for those services is our federally qualified health center reimbursement and not necessarily super, super tied to those grant dollars. So they, they do a little more hands off with that and just focus more on compliance and then big system improvement is what they're interested in, but it's, it's not as performance this is what we had for our budget. So again, the pass-through funds means there's specific dollars associated with specific things for Alameda Health System. And so this is just what the budget was previously. And then it shows that this is what was put into the um, SAC, the uh, service area competition. It's why it was this amount. So they had 0.5 of the new director that was with non-HRSA funds that they were funding, and then the rest of the funding was HRSA funds on the, in that left hand column. Do you guys have any questions about that? So that, again, this was just last year. So, so what I'm saying for next year, there's gonna be something similar. There's gonna be a budget, and we're gonna make some suggestions about how that money is spent in that budget. I, I do have a question. Yeah. It's on the last page that you were talking mm -hmm. about. Sure. Um, is there a reason why San Leandro Hospital isn't included in, in this? You know, like we include all the others, but not them. I'm just curious. Yeah, we're not including San Leandro. We're not including John George. We're not including the emergency department, and we actually don't include Highland Hospital. So those are okay. all hospitals, and they're not part of our scope of service. Okay. So for the HRSA funds, the it's a, it's a health center program. Um, we are a healthcare for the homeless center, and it's all clinic. And okay. it's about inpatient, or not inpatient, outpatient clinics, primary care plus specialty only. So San Leandro is a hospital. It's inpatient care and emergency department, so that is outside of the they, no, they don't have clinics there, huh? No. Oh. Um, John George, similar, psychiatric hospital, yes. separate. Um, our rehab services, separate. Alameda Hospital, separate. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are all hospital and not part of our scope. So last month when we looked at our scope, our sites and hours, mm -hmm. those were all these same clinics only. Right? We did not include those things. We can't approve them. They're not on our scope. It's not part of the health center program. Thank you. It's a good question, though. 
because Alameda Health System is larger mm -hmm. than right. what our scope is. Yeah. That's one of the reasons we have this separate separate board is we have this part of Alameda Health System that we're responsible for and it has special funding related to it and then special rules that require governance separate from and um, in order to meet those requirements. That's why we set up this, this group. Thanks for the question. Okay, so we are working with Alameda County Healthcare for the Homeless Program to develop a budget again. Um, I would expect to see some of these things changes change. Um, this was our first year, for example, that we um, had, we're taking care of our own pharmacy, and so we now have a, a better idea of what that costs. Um, we have a better idea of what our um, other expenses are as well. So we will have a revised budget that is proposed in the new assembly subpoena agreement. Similar, slightly different. The yep. benefits part is that like money you received uh, as, um, That's as separate benefits. funding. Um, so, so the, the they pay for benefits at a, mm -hmm. a small amount, right? They're paying one hundred and two thousand dollars for employee benefits. That's the health care coverage for employees and stuff like that. Okay. Generally, within our system, the Projected costs for Alameda Health System to support its employee benefits is 35%. Um, this is about 16%. There's some rules in the HRSA that say you can pay for this and not for that for health care. So we will never request HRSA dollars for all of the employee benefits because it would create challenges for us to provide decent health care for mm -hmm. our employees. Uh, not decent, decent's the wrong word. Complete? Complete. There are some things the government says they don't want to pay for. So you want to provide a complete array of services for people, which means we need to pay for it from something other than her supply. Mm -hmm. There are different times we'll, that that will be a specific strategy to not cover all of the costs associated with our program or our grant because there are funding, there are restrictions on funding, things you can and can't use it for. Um, we might want to do things that you couldn't use this money for, and we still could just by using other money. Great. Great. I'm going to keep it brief tonight. You're going to be like, what, that's it? <laughs> documents, right? Communication agreements, hey, we're going to talk to each other once a month in meetings. Anything else we need to discuss? We're gonna pay you and keep track of these things for you. It's, it's pretty dry, there's nothing, like I said, nothing terribly uh, controversial. You will be able to read the document when it's complete and comes out. Um, and yeah, insurance requirements, disclosures, forms to sign, the basic stuff. That is the end of our subrecipient agreements orientation. Any other questions about the subrecipient agreement? Do you want me to go to the front where it describes everything again to make sure that you're like feeling good? Um, Having seen the draft, I would say that um, I can say Alexander and I are generally pleased with the new draft and the new language. Um, the, the language itself, I think, is, is good. We're just working out some details. We so want to bring it to you at least at a point from Alameda Health System's perspective that it would be that Alameda Health System would say, yes, this is fine. We can do this. We can do what, we, what they've asked us to do. And then you'll review it 
and you'll either agree or disagree, and then we'll move on from there. And I'm not sure what the order is actually for who approves what first, because their board also needs to approve it. There might be some timing things we are working out also. So I do have a question for the board. Ideally, how much time do you want uh, you know, before you make an approval? Will this be something that you want us to provide it to you a month in advance with the understanding that you'll be voting the following month, or would you be okay with us providing it Thursday, you know, a couple of days before the board meeting? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The gun need a long time. I think, I think yeah, it's yeah, you tell days. us your timeline because that's going to impact your timeline. So when does when that's do you true. need to complete it by? Here's what I will say for this year. I think I think again we're we're moving forward and learning new things and trying to set up the system and the structure to support what works best. So this subrecipient agreement is coming to us on December 4th. That's when we received the initial proposed language, right? It's supposed to start January 1st. It, it doesn't really give us a lot of time. And I hope that what we're doing is kind of getting ready for it. Once we have the standard document this year that is basically something we know and love and cherish and think <laughs> that it's really great for us, that we would have it still well in advance, not receiving the first draft in December um, so that like next year November you'd be having the draft so that it can be improved in December so that it then can be enacted and placed by by January 1st and that's just not what has traditionally happened um, nor have we had to go through this process so we're, we're setting up new things we're setting up a system and a process that is new for everybody I don't think that we really will have the luxury this year of giving it to you for 30 days. I think that's unrealistic. Um, we don't want to hold it up, and I wanna say that we don't wanna, we definitely want you to read it and look at it and, and give feedback on it. I, I don't know that there's gonna be much opportunity to negotiate something new or, you know, if you were to reject it. Um, so part of it is we're trying to, with the county, agree that it's workable. Um, they, so after the county and you both um, approve it, it goes to the Board of Supervisors for sign-off so that the contract can be ratified so that we can get, so that we can invoice them and get paid. So the other thing is the longer it takes, the more delay there is in payment. It does not change the starting point of the grant. The grant still starts January 1st. Even if it doesn't get approved until March, we bill for January, February, and March. Like, if that still happens, none of that goes away. And we're not really worried about that, given that that's traditionally what happens. And it's getting better every year. Look at us. In December, it's getting better. So, yes. I think that's what you'll you'll you say. No, we're not ready to approve that this. Delays the process. It will delay the process, but I'm I, you're allowed to delay yeah, the process. Don't, don't it's your authority. I mean, I don't want you to to feel like you 
can't, but I think, but you get one shot at it. Yeah. it it's not likely that it'll be um, a lot of back and forth at that point. I would recommend you keep it to, okay, what are your high level, what is it that you feel like you need that you're not accomplishing with this document? And we'll, and we'll see if we can get it changed. But you'll have at least from the perspective of our organization that we can deliver this. Um, is the discussion or approval of the agreement uh, for January of this year, or January of 2020? Are we expecting the next time you I'm thinking you'll have a, 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 yeah, something to look at by the January meeting. Yeah. You'll definitely have something to look at by the January meeting. Yeah, um, so it, although it may be that, um, so, uh, so here's what I need to figure out. The conversations that I've had with the county are about this idea of is the contract a public document or not a public document? Where does this document get reviewed? Does it get reviewed in committee? Usually in a board, the board approves it, but they're approving the summary. They're not like going through the details of the language. So similarly, there's usually a committee, um, a finance committee or an executive committee that's reviewing the contract, coming to the board and recommending that it get approved. Um, so, so this idea of who actually will be looking at the details and reading the contract, I think would be likely by committee. Because it's, it wouldn't be the document just on display here, as depending on who has approval rights first. Like it eventually becomes a public document, but making it public before, like whose turn? Yeah, well, interesting, because that, that was one of the questions that I had for the county, whether or not this is something that the Board of Supervisors actually gets, as opposed to just the summary. I knew about the summary, but I'm wondering if the they actually have that. And even the finance committee, when they're reviewing this, before they can endorse it, is that something that they publicly do it, or they, so they do it in closed session? They, they, they do it in closed session and then present, present the summary. I know that last year's document was reviewed in closed session, mm -hmm. the Board of Supervisors came out, they said we are recommending this contract get approved, mm -hmm. but that's all we heard, and I think it was then after it was ratified the contracts are public documents because you're allowed to see the documents of the county, but it's not in the board meeting that it's made public. It's through the process of, yeah, go ahead and you can go look up that contract and read it. You as board members have access to the contract and are able to read it. I think you're reading it privately and in committee and then making a recommendation publicly without the document being fine-toothed in front of us, right? Like, so we've done a little bit of that here from last year's, but that it's not all, we haven't seen all of it or all the language. So then do we need to select a committee and which will happen in January then? Well, so, so here's one thing before we even get to that piece. So, so I met with, uh, you know, the members of the Office of the General Counsel, and we were trying to understand under what statutory uh, section they're actually uh, keeping this document you know, confidential before it's actually ratified. We have yet to come across that, which will require us, because I know initially they kind of said, no, it's, and then when we looked into the California Brand Act, which requires, you know, whatever the board is actually, uh, you know, reviewing to be public or accessible to the public, we couldn't really find anything that will fit that category. So I think this is something that we'll have to discuss with the county to you know, determine, you know, under what uh, section of law they're actually justifying 
preventing the preventing. exposure of it. Right. So, uh, yeah. So. And I don't think that they're necessarily preventing it. I think similarly, they're not. That's just not been the practice. They haven't yeah. done it that way. And so we're. I hate to say we're still figuring some of these details out, but we're still figuring some of these details out. If it, um, it I'll try to get that settled this month. Mm -hmm. This idea that once we're bringing it to you for approval, that the full document is going to be disclosed at that point. That, if it, that it will be a public document, it would be attached, and you'd be able to see the document in its entirety. Um, I'll find that out. If for some reason that's not, if we're not able to make that happen, then yes, it would be by committee. Um, and the earliest we'd be able to make the committee is in January, yeah. right? Or if, alternatively, if they're able to demonstrate under what section it has to be confidential, then we can always Hold a closed session. Closed session the yeah. It would be tricky to receive it on the Thursday and then to yeah. do it, approve yeah. it on Tuesday. Uh, so we, we can certainly facilitate it by providing a summary of, you know, and maybe points of contention that we think is important for the board to review. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there was something on our end. I mean, I have to also, as I look at the calendar and I look at when our January the week before and I was just trying to figure out when I'm going to get my documents ready and I'm <laughs> how I'm going to yes. post them. It's the, se the seventh is the first Tuesday. Yeah. No, the oh, you're right. It's the 14th. Yeah, it is 14th. the 14th. So that's even later, which is not necessarily good, right? No, no, no. January 14th that's is so it, much better. That is yeah. good. So that is better. January 14th is better. Yeah. I, have to fix yeah. I was yeah, looking at January 14th. Buy us a little more time. <laughs> Okay. My vacation back. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. You're my hero today. <laughs> See, I'm going to be gone that whole month of January. Okay. Um, can I do anything via email to you if I, or I can talk to you about that later? Yes. Yeah. I want to say anything. Yeah, we can. You guys can certainly ask questions directly, but not to the committee because that constitutes a formal meeting for the purposes right, of the right. So as long as that. But you can, you can ask me. Yeah. yeah. One on one, you're all good. Okay. Mm -hmm. No side meeting. All right. Are we good? Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings us to a new fun document, and I'm so excited to bring to you today. Your document is in your packet. This is the charity care policy. Um, as you know, there are 19 program requirements for our Versa Health Center. And one of them is a sliding fee discount program. So, we cannot um, stop anybody from coming based on their inability to pay. So what we have is a sliding fee discount program. In our case at Alameda Health System, we, we call that a charity care program. It doesn't have the same title but it is used as our sliding fee discount program. I have attached the document here, and I don't know if you've read it, and I don't have it all just up on the screen for you today, because that would have been a lot of cutting and pasting and copying for me, so I'm sorry. I'm just letting you look at it on paper or on your screen. Um, have you had a chance to read it? 
There's no action required for this today. However, you will be at some point approving this policy. So, so it is it is within your governance um, authority that this is a policy that you would approve. If you look at the end of the policy, the very last page, there's a little spot that says Alameda Health System Homeless Health Center Co-Applicant Board, and then we would put a date that you approve it. When does this need to be approved by? Yeah, You're just getting it. We're learning about it. Um, One of the things we got to get done at some point, sooner is better than later, but the idea probably would be, we're giving it to you today, we're having a discussion about it today, so it might be on the agenda for January that we say, okay, you've, you've had time, you can discuss it again in January too, after thoroughly reading it, um, and talking about what parts of it might concern you. We can even spend some time today, because I did set aside this time with this idea of, you know, we can read it now, can read it together, we can go through parts that might be concerning for you, and then I can describe to you how it works. Um, all of that is possible for today, because this is essentially the last thing on the agenda, which means we have all the time to take with this. Yes? Could we just review, I mean, not going through every detail of it, but just like general information mm -hmm. that we can receive from you? Sure. The first section of the policy is describing a lot of definitions. Who's, who's who in Alameda Health System, who we're referring to. Um, specifically, we have to identify if the patient is 18 years or older, for example. I'm on page one. Yeah. If they're under, what happens? If the family becomes responsible. And a lot of this is about, is about who is responsible for payment for the patient's services that are received, and how do we determine who's responsible for that? So there are certain processes that we put into place, we're on page two, where they have to determine, are you eligible for assistance through our charity care programs or not? Alameda Health System wants to make sure that you're enrolled in a program to pay for your care, whatever program you're eligible for, if we can make you eligible that it goes beyond Alameda Health System, that helps you, the patients, to receive care wherever you need to receive care. So it's important for us to do more than just charity care, but to actually enroll you in Health Pack, if you're eligible for Health Pack, which is the Alameda County Health, the health program of Alameda County, or for Medi-Cal, because again, when you're eligible for Medi-Cal, that's now transferable as well, and will help support you if you need to go someplace else, or Medicare. When you're only enrolled in Alameda Health System Charity Care, it limits what services. If Alameda Health System, you're in, under the Charity Care Program and they have to send you for a referral that's outside of that, the Charity Care Program is not gonna apply for this other outside agency. So we want to have you as fully covered as possible and enroll you before we talk about charity care. Can I ask about yep. burden of proof when it comes to eligibility? challenging is it for someone to prove whether they're eligible or, or not eligible? There is, you have the ability to do a self-attestation. Okay. I say that it's this way for me and that you sign. That makes you responsible for what you say. Okay. Um, I will say one of the challenging, so, so there are some challenges 
Um, currently, the eligibility is going through um, the financial counseling. You need to make an appointment for that. It's separate from your visit. It might prevent you from having your visit first. You may or may not be able to do it on the same day as your visit. So this is all for folks who don't already have Medi-Cal, health tax, Medicare, private insurance. It's any patient that would be essentially considered self-pay or uninsured would need to go get a financial counseling appointment. And there's resistance to that for many reasons. It's hard. Yeah. So our health advocates have been the ones in the past that have signed up people, at least from the primary care clinics, on Medi-Cal and so on and so forth. Now they're no longer here full-time, so that could present a problem, right? How are we case, getting the information out to the, to the people? When, when a patient arrives, um, if they're, there are very few places they can just arrive uninsured without first going to a financial counseling appointment. And the health advocates may also be helping for, to get the patient an appointment with the financial counselor. And what will happen is sometimes those financial counseling appointments are happening because something's expired. They've come through the emergency department. So, so the place where we catch the most people who are uninsured is through the emergency department or through inpatient. They've shown up in those places, they're uninsured, they need to go through financial counseling. In order to get an appointment with our clinic, they need to be insured. They're not even getting an appointment with our clinic. Yeah. Right, it's stopping them. This is one of the reasons that our same-day clinic is converting into an urgent care center because our same-day clinic can't take you if you are uninsured. But the urgent care. But urgent care can. And it's yes. all about the setup of either, how we set each of those things up. So, so usually the charity care is gonna happen in, in three places we catch people without insurance. Mobile health, emergency department, inpatient. The challenge we have with our, so, so then that means for our clinics, the most patients that are self-insured uh, or self-pay or would need to go through this program came from mobile health and have to go to the lab, have to go to radiology, have to do some follow-up specialty care appointments. They've been seen in, in the mobile clinic. We're not billing them, but they need to do this care. So now we need to say, you need a financial counseling appointment. And they may say, no, I don't want to for many reasons. So you have the reason of burden of proof. I don't know where that form is. I can't find that form. That's too hard. Or I just missed my appointment. I'm the person experiencing homelessness. I, it's not my priority. What, are you gonna bill me some more? What do I care? I, you know, they don't care. But this idea of, it's not the, it's not the most important thing in my mind right now. I have other things more important. I already have big debt piling on. What does it matter? Um, there is the uh, fear of consequences for people who are undocumented. Absolutely. And that's why Health Pack is really another way of, of combining all those people. You know what I mean? Mo most of the people on Health Pack are undocumented. And it, is that is that going to be like an open invitation for the government to come in and see that? No, no. they're not um, part of the public charge. Health tax isn't part of the public charge. Yeah, and, and my question around the burden of proof was more, um, uh, what I was thinking was if it's preventing people from getting the care that they need mm -hmm. if there's a high burden.
especially somebody who's experiencing homelessness or you know, some of the people that we uh, have come to the clinic <coughs> are already experiencing dire circumstances and then the burden of proof and is that going to prevent them and what percentage of people get turned away because there's because they're not able to prove their eligibility under these circumstances. Yeah, or that they don't they don't follow through on they don't follow through. follow through. So so um, the data that I have on that is really limited to the mobile clinic at this point, but these are the things that we're looking at. And, and looking through our charity care policy and even asking for like, what's the policy and how do we do it? There's then the reality of, and is it being done? So there's a, this says what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, why we're supposed to do it. And then is it being done? Where are the gaps? Why isn't it catching everybody? Um, there are certainly a lot of people within our system who are still listed as self-pay patients who are not receiving charity care or any other benefit and are being billed and then sent to collections and then having their credit ruined. Mm -hmm. And they're experiencing homelessness. So this idea of, well, we know that they're a person experiencing homelessness, this process isn't working for them. Okay. If there's still a bill at the end of the day. And so what I'm able to look at is how many bills are there at the end and most of what I've looked at for where the bills at the end of the day are is in mobile, because mobile created some problems. <laughs> or switched over of the system, so I got a real quick glance at who, they're all cleared now, it's all fixed. Epic, we're all good. But it's um, the, the bills that then go to that patient who went to the lab for follow-up, the bills that went to that mobile patient who went to radiology for follow-up, and having to figure out how to manage those. What my policy says and what my people in charge of the policy say is, we want the patients to come in under self-pay so that when they show up, we can enroll them in the right program. And my response is, and then you didn't, and now the patient has a bill. How do we stop that? Either you didn't, the patient didn't, whatever happened, it didn't happen, how do we stop that? What's the process? Um, does it say all that stuff in this policy? Um, no, it tells you who's eligible for charity care, but it's, it's not saying that part. And those are kind of like the next steps. But, but the, is there an opportunity maybe would, would that include in the policy something that has stronger language around people experiencing homelessness? So where I find that and where I see, you know, yes, you've created a space for us to make sure that doesn't happen is on page 20, 29 of my packet or page four of this policy. Charity presumptive eligibility. And if you see at the top of the list of who is presumptively eligible, reduction of proof required, homelessness or receipt of care from a homeless clinic is there. So there is a policy that states that there is the ability to have presumptive eligibility in our charity care program based on a person experiencing homelessness. Okay. So why did the patient get a bill if I check them exactly. off as homeless and they're listed as self-care? So the automated process is what we're working on fixing now. And what I, but, but the policy says it's there, but is it in reality happening? So, like it says, eligibility for food stamps would make a person. Mm -hmm. Presumptively uh, eligible. Yeah. If you're eligible for food stamps, you're eligible for charity care. Correct. It's easy. 
presumptive. We and agree as proof of that, we're good to go. And that's what our health advocates were doing. You know, that was a big part of the food stamp thing. Are they putting data into EPIC as well? Yes. Yeah, so, so policy-wise, having reviewed the policy, I think the policy is solid and creates all the spaces that we need to make sure our patients experiencing homelessness are cared for and that the bills are avoided. The policy is there, but we are missing then some of the standard work or the systems that make sure that this policy is regards to things like food stamps. So the eligibility for food stamps is also changing at the federal level. Right. Is, is there, because that's going, that is changing mm -hmm. and it's presumably getting higher. So Alleged there may progress. be people who are no longer eligible for food stamps with right. those. Okay, so if you look at our charity care policy, the details, um, the goes up to 300%, which is um, higher than the federal uh, poverty is 250. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. um, it's higher than what HRSA requires. Now, there is, um, under HRSA, HRSA would say that um, that you're not allowed to provide a discount, a, a federal discount, beyond 200%. At 200%, you must charge somebody something. But there are exceptions, unless you have some funding from elsewhere that can cover that, and that's also then where we get our charity so our charity care program uses non-federal dollars to cover the balance so that we can provide support to people at up to 300%. Um, and so already we're covering, and the idea is even here at this point, we're covering those that are, have fallen out of the eligibility for health tax, right? Health tax 250, yeah. 250, um, Medi-Cal, I think 200, and so we go up to 300 for charity care. And it, um, I, I need to find the specifics of what the percentage is at 300% um, because. So is there still a cost, a share of cost at that level or is it completely 100% covered? I don't, want to, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm gonna double check it. Okay. And that, it might be that I have to find the other which essentially says that um, it actually has the, oh, here it is, page 28, also known as page three. All right, a low-income uninsured patient is eligible for charity care consideration based on meeting the family income eligibility criteria. It's the top paragraph. So AHS has extended the charity care services to patients who have family income that does not exceed 350%. So the full discount which means that complete write-off is provided for individuals and families with annual income at or below 200. Partial discounts are provided for individuals and families with incomes above 200 or below 350. And those partial discounts are adjusted based on the income levels. So there's a chart that goes along with every year, gets updated, here's what the family size is, here's what that income level is, and here's what that portion And then you'll see, um, and this is for our uninsured patients, 
Then you see there's another section for insured patients below. So even patients who have insurance mm -hmm. where they might have a disproportionate share of costs <coughs> and whose income exceeds 350% may still be eligible for discounts. Um, and what I can hear you saying is that you would like next month the discount documentation. That'll show you what the percentage of discount is. I can do that. And I think that the other, um, so where, okay, so now where do I see additional opportunities for improvement? Okay, so we go back to this charity care presumptive eligibility based on homelessness. So, so what, what, what maybe this hasn't supposed or proposed or mm, assumed, I'm not sure what the right word is here, but what they haven't told is, what if a patient is experiencing homelessness and has 350% of federal poverty level income is experiencing homelessness because they're... Well, the cost in Alameda County alone, that could very well happen. Exactly, so, so, yeah. so this idea of, of can my homelessness outrank my income? And I'm not sure that that's clear yeah. and so this yeah. might be an area or a place where you provide input where you say listen you want to make it super clear that as soon as the patient is experiencing homelessness income doesn't matter they're experiencing homelessness end of story mm -hmm. you don't need other information you've got all the information you need yeah. to write that off that's yeah, good exactly so <laughs> there will yes. be legal challenges which happen i mean this is where we're trying to avoid the perception that we create for patients, and yeah. this is where the uh, federal poverty uh, level is usually dictated. So, I mean, of it's, course, that, that will require so some legal it's so low. for us to, to yeah. determine whether or not this will be perceived again. The federal poverty level has, I don't know, it's a joke. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's truly a joke. Well, you know, what I think, you know, yeah. the reason why I'm saying this is for the board to be uh, cognizant of the fact yeah. that there are certain uh, laws and regulations that may preclude us. I will also add, though, that having recently worked with our FQHC um, consultant, so, so we're looking for how do we do it? What are some ways that we can make it easier for patients? And what's the then the work that we do to save them? And some of the suggestions she had is like, you can have more than one policy, a policy that specifically applies for patients experiencing homelessness, and then a policy that applies to everybody else. And so that might be one thing that is considered that yeah, as soon as you're in this in this track, this is your policy. And if you're in this other track, it's it's different. That's good, yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to picture the process. So if someone is inpatient or in the emergency room, not insured, someone helps them apply for Medi-Cal or Health Pact, and then simultaneously they should also help them for the charity care in the event that they're not approved for Medi-Cal or Health Pack. Is that accurate so far? In the application for Medi-Cal, yes, they're gathering all the information that lets but them know which program they're eligible for, whether it be Medi-Cal. It, it, it's not just about applying for Medi-Cal. They'll know right away whether they're eligible for Medi-Cal based on the information that they're getting from the patient. So. So they're, they're assessing their eligibility. What are you eligible for? Are you eligible for Medi-Cal? No. Are you eligible for health tax based on the information you're giving me? Yes. Okay, then we go. Um, you're not? Okay, then, you're, then 
then charity care are you eligible for that? So they're going through the list and just figuring out which one you're eligible for. It's not like you apply to four and see which one comes back. It's what are you eligible for? This, that, or the other. Which bucket are you going to sit in right now? Okay. And then when you come back another time, which bucket do you fit in now? Is it the same bucket? And then on page 29-37, number three, mm -hmm. if an uninsured hospital patient does not complete the application form within 30 days of delivery, so <laughs> is there going to be like a form given to them that they have to complete within 30 days? Help me out. What page are you on? So number three. Oh, page Wait, four of 10 at the top. Page four of 10 at the top, a low income. It's number three. Number three, if an uninsured hospital patient does not complete the application form within 30 days of delivery, AHS will notify the patient that the application has not been received and will provide the patient an additional 120 days to complete the application. I'm just thinking of the population. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That, <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of things run through my mind with that one. So again, this is the question of, um, if we have presumptive eligibility for a patient experiencing homelessness, this is not for that patient. This would not, okay, all right. Um, what, but what's the reality? And I'd have to go back and ask. Are they using this, are, 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 again, they're using this for our patients regardless of whether they're homeless and they need to be dropping them in another bucket and saying, you're homeless, we're going straight here. No application necessary. Yeah. In which case, it's very important to determine whether they are homeless. Which is why the, the, the determination is so important. Yeah. But but I will tell you, I don't think that that's how this is happening. I think this is happening the way you've described, Dawn, which is all patients treated equally, regardless of whether they're homeless, to fill this paper out, even though there is a policy that says that there is presumptive eligibility for people experiencing homelessness. So then once it's determined and the person doesn't fill these things and it doesn't get back to you, then are they sent a collection bill or is there a follow-up to figure out why this is not happening or is this a homeless person, do they fall into a different bucket? Or? Yeah, because I thought it said that. There is a section that addresses, you know, debt collection for people who are going to be on page uh, seven. So section Roman number three uh, is what covers that. So this would be really terrible for somebody who is experiencing homelessness to get to fall into this situation. Yeah, and, and they would they would never know that they were in they were in that situation. They don't have an address. They would not get notified. You know, I mean, there's a million different roads you can go there. <laughs> Oh, in some cases, yeah. our strategy is that we, that we um, for patients experiencing homelessness, use um, Alameda Health System address. Again, there are there are so things that our qualify. system there are things that our system does at times. So again, it's about which patient. Um, if the patient's identified as experiencing homelessness and they've had our address put in place, um, it, we've actually stopped doing it like that. It says homeless address, not 1411. We don't need to send ourselves mail. But we had them for a long time. So it says homeless address, and, and essentially by having that address and no place for it to go, it stops it there from being discharged. Okay. 
and it, it will get automatically written off. So if the patient is identified with a homeless address, like there's many things that we do to help prevent a patient getting billed when they're experiencing homelessness, if they, even if they don't fill out all their paperwork, and if it's been done correctly. With the homeless address, the system is designed to stop it. The challenge is more for those people who have an address that's not listed as homeless address. The patient's experiencing homelessness and they have an address that they use to get mail. To get yeah. mail. Right. We're not identifying, we're not putting a homeless address for them. They, they, they've identified this address that they use. They haven't finished the process. <coughs> Right now, I mean, I, I, I know the system well enough to know that that is likely what's happening. And that's one of the one of the things I'm working on through both this policy and then looking through, but how does it work and who does it work for within my scope, which means stemming from my mobile health clinic doing most of my work there and trying to find these gaps to fill them in. So I think I fall in that, is I have an address, but I'm still homeless. Exactly. So you also have coverage, yeah? I have coverage. So, so it's, it's... We need to take that away and test the system. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm no. kidding. No, no, no. no. Um, but yes, you'd have an address. Right. And so it's possible, you know, maybe I can, I can check your, mm -hmm. check some things, do some ver validity yeah. questions about yeah. what's being, what's in our system, mm -hmm. how are you identifying... That was all that I was going to say look at that as an example. That's amazing. I love testing. Mm -hmm. So then we need to find a way to bring these people who are homeless but are not showing up as homeless under the charity care policy. We need to think about ways to, yes. to make that happen. Yes. Yes. Leveraging the policy. The policy, like that's one of the other things. I'm like, they've written a great policy. It, it gives me those places that then we look at the systems and say, so, so how, did, how did this happen? How does this patient get billed if they're right. presumptively eligible for charity care as a person experiencing homelessness? Yeah. And then um, I got a question. So they receive this bill. What department do they go to? to say they are eligible and slip through the cracks. They get the bill. What department do they go to to get that cleared up? Currently, they call our finance department on all of our on all the bills you would receive from us. There's a phone number that you can. Um, if it's coming through mobile, they pretty much just bring us, bring them to us on mobile. And this is how we kind of found one of the system errors, is through mobile clients coming and saying, uh, I got this. <laughs> uh oh, okay, fix that. So they bring them to us um, if they have advocates, but many people have not brought them to us. And they won't. And so what, oh, so what else am I doing, Eric? That is a good question. What else am I doing is, um, so that we've set up some standard reports that'll feed back to me to tell me who's getting billed. Um, that's one of the other things we're working on with Epic is getting regular reports yeah. so I can find out who's getting billed and is it checked off as homeless and okay, so can I use this? I have this report, does this mean now that I have some way to create a system to stop that? It, it should coincide with their income level, right? I mean, it should theoretically, be. you would think that that would 
kick it out. You know what I mean? Yeah, but their income level isn't always completed. So there's bits of information that are missing. And remember, we want, regardless of income level, as soon as that homeless box is checked, we want it to be yeah. cleared. Because, again, you can have income and be That's homeless. True. And, and you're, it's a significant burden then. Like, you're not going to get out of homelessness. So then Heather is Nobody's so homeless by choice. Right there? That's right. No, that's right. Nobody by choice. Heather, so then is your plan that next time we're in the in the coming few months when we discuss this policy to think about is is that your plan to think about ways to, to bring those people who are experiencing homelessness but are not showing up as homeless and find a way to bring them under this policy? Um, so, so what I'm working on is is leveraging the current policy within our system to make sure that the policy is being um, used. That if you have this place that says there's systems of eligibility, that it's accessed and not just left out there. The opportunity you have as a CAB, I don't have the authority to approve this policy or not approve this policy. You have the authority to approve this policy or not approve this policy. It's in your jurisdiction because it's one of the requirements for HRSA that you have a sliding fee discount program. So what I am asking you to do, and what I think we've talked about today is where I see, where we've identified some potential holes. This idea of, okay, you're 350 or more and you're homeless, where does that leave you in this policy? That you may be asking for some language in the policy that states that homelessness automatically puts you down a different track. And you would want to see that in a policy like this. Yeah. That this policy, although it may good, be good for the system, may or not be adequate for people experiencing homelessness. You want to keep this policy, approve it, and <coughs> have an additional policy that, that is specifically around people experiencing homelessness, and that that's the one that's used for people experiencing homelessness. You have the authority for all of those things. I bring you information, I tell you what I think the reality is for how things are being used. You've identified, I think, a really reasonable gap. Uh, next month, we would bring this policy to you currently as is and say, it's an action item. What do you want to do? And your action would be to approve it, or your action could be to not approve it and to send it back with the following recommendation. There's um, something that I do want to acknowledge for it. Uh, so the policy as it currently stands is a system-wide policy. So several things can happen if the Collaborative Board determines that it's not adequate for the purposes of the program. Uh, you know, well, we can certainly make the recommendations for the mental health system. One of the mental health system can say that's fine. The other one they can say, well, no. Uh, we'll need to create a separate and apart policy that specifically applies to the programs that fall within the scope of the jurisdiction of the Collaborative Board. So, yeah, there, there could be um, consequences <laughs> to your decisions. <laughs> really hoping that there are. <laughs> Good consequences, yeah. yeah. Well, my, my question, because I was looking at it earlier, and it's just like, it's like, there's just so many questions around this policy more than anything. And so uh, I'm kind of forgetting the 
legal process like like if we have tons of questions before January that can't be email we have to discuss it in the January meeting form. that is correct okay. yeah you bring it here for discussion okay. and it's valuable discussion I want to say that like as far as policies go within your jurisdiction this is this is a really really good one where you have the opportunity to impact I mean this is one of the reasons you're so important and, and, and why we value you as a board is that this this policy really matters um, and and so you have some authority over it and it, yes there's some potential consequences it could be that they say well sorry sorry we're gonna keep our policy why don't you go make your you can have another one but we need to keep this one for this part and now there will be a separate one for your part and that may be a great strategy or it may make things harder I mean I can't really I would think whatever policy you would create the, the system would still have to abide by it for that any patients within our right. within our jurisdiction also I mean so keep, keep that in mind they would have to abide by the policy that you approve right. um, they would get feedback if for some reason they felt that they couldn't abide by it if it Caused us to have to shut our doors, for example, right? Like mm -hmm. they would. And then the other piece, you know, as, as the council for the Republican board, it's also my responsibility to let you know whether or not what you recommend is supposed to be in the scope of the business plan or something else. Where does that come from? Which part of the money? What, the charity care? Yeah. Other? Is it in, <laughs> it's in the budget? Oh. It does not come from any federal sources. So it yeah. helps us. It's a system. It comes from the system. It comes yeah. from outside of our, it comes from outside. So then it looks like we have some concerns and we'd like to discuss this further in January. Yeah. Oh yeah, Maybe make definitely. some recommendations. Can I conference call or can you conference call me? <laughs> I don't yeah, want, I really, absolutely. seriously, I we really can, want to um, get on I'm this. I'm sure we can, we can work on um, having you conferenced in. Okay. For the January meeting. And we'll have to yeah. do I'm looking at Because yeah. 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 so I'll be three hours ahead of you, so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we can have you conferenced in. Okay. That would be great. Sounds good. So is that just a request to have time to continue discussion in January? Yeah, so we'll put that on the agenda. Yeah. Um, and so what I will also do for the agenda for, for January, it becomes an action item. So similar to what we did today, where I kind of said, okay, make the motion. You're gonna move, you, somebody's gonna make a motion. That's how you're gonna start the discussion because it's an action item. So it would be I move that we approve or you move that we don't approve. Whichever one you want to move, whoever wants to do it, you will make that motion. Approve the motion. No, no, no. Oh, no you don't you're gonna, today, yeah. you're gonna, up, not yes. today, but in the next meeting, you would approve the policy, policy or not. You're saying I move that we approve the policy, the policy, or you're gonna say I move that we don't approve the policy. Somebody will second that motion, and then you will have the discussion, and then you will call a vote. You can, you can have more than one motion. You can have somebody move to approve, and somebody can move. To not approve. I mean, I, I think you probably only need one. 
because you know, it's either going to pass or not going to pass, right? So, so whether the move, the motion is to approve it, or whether the motion is to not approve it, he would, it would still require once upon voting that a majority do whatever the motion is. And you can always amend the motion to say that it's, it's approved contingent on A, B, C, and D taking place or being reflected. On the oh board. yeah, so, yeah. so you yeah. don't have to disapprove it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's. Yeah. But usually the idea is there's a motion. Somebody seconds it, yes, and the person who seconded it generally agrees with the motion. Yeah, that's the motion I would be passing. The people who make the motion, that their plan is, I move that we do this. This is my vote that we do this. Somebody seconds it, yes, I agree that we're going to do that. Discussion, and then vote. Yeah. So, for example, what will happen? Let's say if the motion is to approve, somebody seconds, and then there is a discussion ensues. After that, two things can happen. Then we'll go for vote of the board. If it doesn't pass, then someone else can make a motion to say. So that motion didn't pass, which is to approve it as it is. So okay. now the next motion on the table will be to approve or with. you know with the recommendations yeah. and then outline and then from there then you know the yeah. second that, that makes sense. And this is where if there is the potential for you guys to be in disagreement, whether it gets approved or not. Where the chair and the vice chair become important, very important um, facilitators of the discussion. Um, I'm not saying that you guys are going to all disagree or anything like that, but this would be the yeah, first. Uh, would be an opportunity to also practice the like making sure that everybody has had a chance to speak who wants to speak, not make, making sure that nobody's taking over the floor, for example, uh, making sure that it doesn't go off topic. If it's about time, like making sure that we're, you know, okay, end of discussion, enough discussion, everybody's just repeating themselves, we don't need to discuss anymore, and we can call for the votes. Um, and so that's what we might see, or what it would look like. And, and so you practice that at home. <laughs> <ready> at <laughs> if, uh, if there's recommendations that we want to make, or if there's whatever, improvement, whatever happens, it goes back to We we'll have to go through all the committees. So there's a group of uh, different departments, including the Office of the General Counsel. So we'll just review it. Yeah. yeah, they would have to review it again and say, okay, so what your recommendations are. Okay. And is there a length of time, um, say, everything looks good to get approved that we have to um, like come back to it after a certain length of time, or is it pretty much in effect for um, from here on out? Yeah. Once, no, once it's approved, um, the next scheduled review is 2021. Okay. 12, 2021. So I think it's two years. Every two years or so, it gets yeah, reviewed. So and so it would come back to okay. you in a couple of years when you approve it again. Okay. But so yeah, once it is approved, you get, you get two years with that policy. Those are the people who've already approved it. They've looked through. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You you're getting it. It's just come through. It's fresh. Look, it's just 12, 2019. It's not like it's not late. You're not late. You're looking at it the same month as everybody else that they did. Um, and you guys get the. I don't see you get the last word, but again, we try to give you stuff that we think, okay, we can do this. 
right? We're not going to give you something we can't do. Um, and it does give you the opportunity to say, well, that's nice. Can you also do, and then we discuss, figure out if we also can, and we'll bring it back to you. Okay, here's our new proposal. This is what we can do. Well, um, public comments. Yes, that's the end of that item. Yeah, it's a very important item. It really very, is. I'm really excited that we can finally bring it to you. I've been like trying to get it in front of you for a while, and and I think it is one of like one of the prime pieces of work that you could take potential pride in. Trust me, that it even says what it says now. I'm really proud of this document. And it's already gone through many changes. Um, Making policy can make a difference. Oh, absolutely. Policy expert would agree. That's so true. Okay, uh, is there any public comment? Uh, any co applicant board member comment? Thank you.